In particular, APD is largely formed in order to uh, deal with, quote, all able-bodied Negroes who have abandoned the service of their employers for the purpose of idleness or who are found loitering or rambling about or idly wandering about the streets or other public thoroughfare. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and on today's show, we'll be continuing our series on policing in Austin by taking a little look back in time. I've always been a firm believer that reflecting on our history is a key part of gaining a more nuanced and accurate understanding of our modern political situations, but I have to say this is particularly true when it comes to policing. Not only do you see the structural remnants of the past in our modern-day policing systems, but you also see the roots of the intense amount of mistrust, anger, and fear that continues to make police reform and conversations about police reform in the 21st century extremely difficult. That's why we're going to start today's episode in the very beginning, way back in the year 1100, long before the United States was even established as a country. We're then going to follow that timeline all the way through to the present day, highlighting some of the more recent efforts at local police reform as we tell that story. To start us off on that timeline, our first guest is Chris Harris. He's Director of Criminal Justice Programs at Texas Appleseed, and he's also a member of the City Community Reimagining Public Safety Task Force. As you might remember from previous episodes, this is the group that's made up of Austin residents, who are helping to guide and lead the city's larger efforts to reimagine our public safety system and increase accountability in policing. A few months ago, this task force put together an extremely thorough timeline on the history of policing in Austin and America. The timeline was developed in order to, quote, ground the task force, city staff, and community members in the context of systemic racism within U.S. history, including Austin history, and to ask the questions, what does public safety mean and who is and has been historically safe or unsafe in our communities? End quote. But before we listen to that, I just want to acknowledge the other task force members and city staff who helped to put together this timeline. They include Paula Rojas, Haley Eastley, Emily Garrick, Brian Oakes, Amanda Josso, Kelly Coleman, and Aisha Khan. You can find a PDF of the timeline at austintexas.gov slash public safety. Okay, now on to that interview. I thought maybe we could start, I mean, when you talk to folks about this, where do you begin this story? When we start to think about the history of policing in America and Austin in particular, where where do you start? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think for me, I, I, you know, I, you know, we, we, actually started, you know, the, the literal origins of, of the word sheriff uh, back in England and, and around 1100 or so uh, in the presentation that we gave during the, the task force meeting. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the night watches um, and that were eventually, you know, kind of compiled into something resembling a municipal police force uh, what well, night watches and, and the, the private security uh, guards that that the merchants uh, hired in 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 London and in in England um, that were compiled into something resembling again what we would call you know municipal uh, socialized policing 
uh, are really where it begins to me because you, you can really see the direct sort of linkage between, you know, um, this entity, right? Um, uh, what, what we think of as policing um, and, and sort of its, its original intent, which was to protect first and foremost, the property of kind of the wealthy uh, people in, um, in, in, you know, these urban areas of, of England at, at, at that time. Um, and, and how basically, you know, um, they were, you know, this, this thing that these wealthy folks, you know, were paying for to guard their, their property, um, they were able to get socialized, socialize the cost of, so that we all were paying, uh, for it. Uh, but the, you know, in a lot of ways, the priorities of this, of these new entities, of these, of these police departments, was still the protecting the property of, of these these wealthiest individuals uh, in, in in these societies, and and to me, you know, we can still learn so much about you know that transition, um, and um, in in that way, and then when we think about it on you know in America, it takes a few different, um, you know, it, it it goes in a few different directions, but the example that you're most cited, and I think is equally emblematic of that dynamic is is what we saw in terms of um you know the origins of policing particularly in the american south which was you know largely as slave patrols um and so while obviously the the racial dynamic right and, and sort of the racism embedded in, in in the mission of those entities uh and and the racial dynamics and the racism we still play out we see play out in policing today are are, are really clear what it also speaks to is that same dynamic, right? Where these are entities that are first and foremost designed with protecting the property of, of wealthy folks, in this case, wealthy slave owners, um, to, to ensure that in this, in this context, these, these people, uh, enslaved people, but who were, who were regarded as property were returned, uh, and were not allowed to escape and not allowed to, um, to be free. So, those those two things are really emblematic to me of of, of the origins of police and, and and where I like to start the story. Yeah, and and when you start to look at it, you know, and tie it back to Texas and Austin a bit, one thing that um, stuck out to me when I was looking at the timeline is this bit about the Texas Rangers. So. I'm not from Texas originally, so so I didn't have one of these like Texas history classes in in elementary school that I always hear people talking about. So I really had no idea what the Texas Rangers were. I just had heard of it like in pop culture. But can you talk a little bit about the Texas Rangers and in this time period and and kind of their origins? Yeah. So um, 1820s, the Texas Rangers, um, you know, are 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 founded and uh, largely considered the first state police agency uh, in Texas. And, you know, um, pretty explicitly founded with the purpose to protect land um, that, you know, had just recently been taken uh, and settled uh, by white people who are new to Texas uh, from the Comanches. Um, And so, uh, you know, again, a very kind of explicit tie to the the point of <laughs> some of these deputized, um, you know, uh, what what Mary McCollum calls you know violence workers, people who are authorized to employ violence in the in 
in the execution of their duties um, is is to protect the property of um, you know a, a privileged few, um, and in this case, property that you know literally had just had just you know not long before uh, been been taken and settled. Yeah, again, it's that that property conversation that you're talking about. And then you see, you know, when I'm looking down on this timeline, there's also this conversation. Something I see that pops up over and over again is like vigilante groups and kind of the connection of of them to um, white supremacy and policing. And, you know, especially in today's world, I felt like that struck me given recent events. Can you talk a little bit about the role of these like vigilante groups and and their connection to Austin also, you know, there's like direct mentions of this happening in Austin. I feel like that's also key for us to just recognize. I feel like a lot of times we talk about the South and for some reason or another, we don't include ourselves in that conversation or our own city in that conversation. Yeah, sure. Um, well, particularly, I mean, while, while you know, vigilante uh, groups have <laughs> throughout American history um, enjoyed, um, particularly white vigilante groups have enjoyed, um, you know, some special protections and, and kind of free reign, even when there was a, a law enforcement, as they call it, presence um, to when um, in certain contexts, um, what you see, you know, very explicitly and uh, really, especially in the 1850s, um, is, you know, these, these kind of vigilante committees being formed, um, you know, almost because there is an absence of kind of an organized um, a police force. And so uh, there was a, a mayor, uh, 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 a newspaper publisher, state senator, and former uh, Texas Ranger um, established uh, a vigilante committee uh, explicitly in 1854 to drive Latinos out of Austin, uh, particularly because um, he feared uh, solidarity with uh, enslaved people uh, and and those Latinos would would spark a rebellion against white supremacy uh, in the city. you know, they basically acted as kind of pseudo police forces. Um, and, and, and again, in 1856, another vigilant, vigilante committee was formed to respond to what was deemed um, the white community's uh, demand for a crackdown on, quote, idle loitering Negroes. And, and obviously we see connections with, um, with that to, you know, sort of the ongoing uh, efforts to uh, criminalize homelessness, right? Um, this this notion that um, that certain populations, if if they're not busy working, uh, if they're not um, busy being exploited, uh, then then their very existence should be criminalized, and we should authorize uh, you know armed individuals, whether it's a vigilante group or a police department, to coerce them into into moving, leaving where they're at, or uh, be authorized to arrest them and, and incarcerate them um, for, for merely being, being idle. Um, so soon after, you know, Austin would, would actually more formalize its law enforcement, but in, in the absence of 
uh, of that, uh, these these vigilante committees are um, are an important chapter in in early Austin history for sure. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the more formalizing of our police force. I think um, to to read the quote. I, so basically, what happens is I'm looking again further down the timeline, 1865. You have um, emancipation, and and pretty much what you see immediately after is this uh, push that there, you know, there's this loophole, I guess, basically that you can still have slave labor for those convicted of a crime. And that kind of creates this incentive, as you say on this, on this document, creating an incentive for whites in power to arrest black people in order to exploit their labor and prevent their entry into wage labor and political power. And, and what I, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how, what Austin does with this, because I think this is one of the most you know, damning quotes as far as the formation, what our police service was originally created to do. Um, you know, there, yeah, maybe if you could talk a little bit about kind of how Austin takes this right after emancipation. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, I, I think this is, you know, so such an explicit time period where you can see, you know, the designs of, 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 our, of you know, sort of organized police uh, department. So exactly right. It, you, you finally have emancipation of enslaved people. Um, so it's no longer uh, legal to uh, force someone to work for free uh, in your house, on your on your property, in your on your plantation, um, unless they've been convicted of a crime. And so what we then immediately see, uh, and not just in Texas or, or in Austin, but across the South, um, are the passage of, of, of black codes, um, which are designed explicitly to drive black people into incarceration, which is again this loophole where uh, where black people can continue to be uh, basically enslaved because they've been convicted of a crime. So, how can we structure the laws to ensure that you know? behavior if undertaken by black people is considered criminal and 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 then uh that will allow black people to be enslaved yet again and so that's that's what's done um and again we see uh we see the origins of of you know these these battles that still are being waged now around um sitting lying sleeping outside um because in particular what's what's made criminal is any sort of what's deemed idleness on the part of black people. So if a black person is not working, um, has not, has not contracted themselves out to a landowner, not, uh, basically again, subjected themselves once again to exploitative labor conditions, um, then, the state uh, and the city are are doing what they can to drive black people back into that situation by through criminalization. So, in particular, APD is is largely formed in order to uh, deal with you know quote all able-bodied Negroes who have abandoned the service of their employers for the purpose of idleness, or who are found loitering or rambling about or idly wandering about the streets or other public thoroughfares. So again, you know, literally black people's, you know, mere existence, if it's not as, as a, a, an exploited laborer, 
is is deemed criminal um, so that they can then be uh, legally enslaved underneath the 13th Amendment. Um, and, you know, and again, in, in in some ways, these conditions continue. Um, and and again, and, and one really overt area is, you know, ongoing criminalization of homelessness, again, not just here, but around the country. Um, and and we see it in, in other things as well. Um, you know, many decry the, the, the failures of the war on drugs. And when we look at the war on drugs, what we see is um, a, a lot of criminal statutes that are designed very explicitly to target um, the drugs used by um, quote unquote minority population. Um, we see you know, enhanced sentences uh, for, for decades for, um, for drugs that are seen as drugs used primarily by black and brown people. Um, drugs like marijuana, drugs like crack, um, and, and obviously for, for a long time, we had disparities in, you know, the sentencing that you would receive if you were found with crack as compared to cocaine, which is seen as more of a drug used by white people. And so that's very much the same dynamic. We're going to um, punish this particular type of drug use much more harshly than these, than this other type of drug use, because it allows us to, um, to, to drive folks back into this it's really this underclass status uh, where not just during their incarceration, where of course they can you know, be worked for cheap or free, uh, but also because the stigma of a criminal record um, subjects you to uh, potentially lifelong discrimination in housing, in employment, in education. Um, and so, you know, the use of criminal code of the law uh, to um, to criminalize folks and particularly targeting black folks um, and, and the use of police as an instrument to carry out uh, and enforce these laws um, goes back a while and, and unfortunately um, continues uh, in certain ways today. Yeah, and you know, you can see it again back here in this June 1865, you know, it says that the mayor and city council met you know, quote unquote, to, you know, making it necessary to organize a police force to deal with them. You know, it's yep. pretty explicit. Um, what's the driving factor there? And, and going down and, and keeping this through line here with Austin, um, another thing that struck me in looking at this timeline is in 1906, the Austin streetcar boycott. Um, and, and I think this is a time in Austin's history that perhaps a lot of folks aren't, aren't very familiar with. We had these streetcars that basically connected what at the time were our suburbs is my understanding, like Hyde Park, um, to the rest of the city. Do you want, can you talk a little bit about this, um, incident? Um, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So, um, in 1906, uh, Austin, you know, passed an ordinance that segregated uh, the streetcars, um, uh, which prompted a boycott um, from Austin's black community. Um, and um, unfortunately, that boycott, you know, didn't persist by the time the, the ordinance uh, officially went into effect because uh, Austin police were, were, were told to arrest uh, and, and or fine uh, any black people who who, who tried to actually 
organize the boycott uh, and help people uh, use other forms of transportation. Um, you know, many people are are pretty are familiar, uh, at least at least at, at a at a high level, with um, the Montgomery bus boycott um, and, and you know triggered by you know the refusal to give up uh, you know uh, the seat on on a bus. Uh, which then led to a year-long, a roughly year-long boycott of the buses there, um, again, initiated by Rosa Parks, um, and how effective that was in ending segregation in, in the buses there. And that was in the 1950s, and we had a very similar situation, right? It, uh, literally 50 years, a half century earlier here, um, but um, unfortunately in that situation, the, the police were... Um, were able basically to break it up by, um, by, by the fact that there were, you know, people that participated in the boycott explicitly were, were criminalized. And this kind of fits, I think, into another theme that you see, which is the police's, you know, involvement in suppressing these kind of movements, right? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's clear here, right, that there's um, there's not a, a public safety reason <laughs> for for this ordinance. There 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 isn't a, a grand danger uh, that comes from uh, black people using alternatives to the streetcars to avoid um, the the segregation uh, that they're being subjected to, the second class status they're being subjected to on these streetcars. Um, this is very explicitly a use. Of the, of the criminal code of the law and of the, the police, the law enforcement um, to, to simply break up um, a, a social uh, and economic movement. Um, and, and right, this is another you know, sort of regular feature uh, of policing um, and, and not just um, of these types of movements, but we also see it very often uh, repeatedly in in the labor movement as well, where uh, again police are are brought in, and 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 it's and it's really similar, right? It's it's really um, police being used to protect the economic interests uh, of an entity, um, whether it's the railway operators uh, or um, a factory, uh, and the police being used to to break up a strike. Um, it's um, again, a, a fairly explicit use of, of police and law enforcement um, to protect ultimately um, what's deemed as the, the, the rightful property uh, of, a, of an elite. Mm-hmm. Um, another another story that I would love for you to share, it's also on this timeline, is um, August 22nd, 1919, um, you know, captures this incident of um John Shalati. I'm not exactly sure if I'm saying that name correctly. Um, can can you tell folks about this? I I think what's interesting, you know, one of the things I really liked about this uh, report that you all put together is again this this thing of of, of an Austin history, like, like you mentioned. I think so many times we we hear of these famous stories from other places, but um, you know, I think grounding it in like that that they happened here too is, is important. So can you talk a little bit about this story here? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, you know, I mean, because, you know, people often think, oh, well, this isn't this isn't the deep south, you know, this isn't Mississippi or Alabama um, or, even, or even Louisiana, um, where where, you know, those intense struggles of the civil rights movement happened and and, you know, um, and the awful violence against, um, you know, people protesting and, and marching for for civil rights happened. But but no, a lot of very similar things happened in Texas and, and right here in Austin as well. In this in this particular case, um, the um, secretary for the NAACP, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People for New York, uh, was uh, was beaten and forced to leave Austin uh, right by the Driscoll Hotel. Um, uh, by a constable, uh, Charles Hamby, uh, and someone named Ben Pierce. Um, basically, uh, Shiladi had been meeting with Austin representatives of the Austin chapter of the NAACP. And, you know, this this constable uh, thought, you know, Shiladi was here to stir up trouble, um, to, to help organize uh, Black people in Austin, potentially to, to obviously to try to improve um, you know, a lot in the city and, um, and that couldn't be tolerated. And so, you know, literally this, this person, um, Chilati, this NAACP secretary was, was beaten and, and then immediately brought to the train depot and, and forced to leave the city. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think th- then we see going down, you know, a few, a few more years later, in 1924, um, the Austin Police Department, um, as a, as we more come to know it today or by name, is officially formed. And and you see there in the in the same year again along these lines of talking about these issues that happened here. Um, you mark on mind that the uh, we had a KKK revival here in Austin. It said membership in Austin peaked in 1924 with about. 3,000 to 5,000 members, which were one in 10 of native-born white population of Travis County. Yeah, and this this was a time when the KKK was was resurgent really around the country, um, uh, particularly in the South, of course. Um, but yes, um, there's, you know, <laughs> there's some pretty, uh, you know, shocking, you know, uh, you know, headlines you can see from from the from the newspapers of the day uh, about some of the events that they they would put on um, that you know were were really well attended um, and yeah, there was even a uh, chapter of uh, women of the KKK uh, formed here in in 1923 um, and a couple of Klan parades. Um, uh, you know, in that early 20s period. Um, and even the sheriff of Travis County at the time admitted to belonging uh, to the organization, um, uh, along with uh, a, a city council member, the superintendent of police uh, and public safety, uh, John Copeland, and uh, uh, the chief of detectives, uh, E.L. Young, um, you know, and that's just uh, the known, uh, you know, police uh, and law enforcement personnel. Um, it's, you know, assumed that other APD and other law enforcement people were 
uh, engaged and active uh, with the Klan uh, during that time as well. Yeah. And then, you know, jumping forward um, again and in, in talking about the Austin police and APD in particular in 1946, you have here the Austin Police Academy began. Um, and and uh, I, I guess, you know, and it says in here, the first black officer to enter the academy was John Dudley um, in 1947. Uh, and it mentions that he was a, he wasn't allowed to arrest white people and could not carry a gun. Which <laughs> I guess right. is not surprising, but I I did find surprising. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and, and it you know I think it um, you know again if 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 you look at what you know really defines policing, um, it's it's you know at its core it's this authority to to use violence, coercion, and surveillance uh, in in the achievement of its of its goals. Um, and by virtue of not allowing this individual to, uh, to arrest white people or carry a gun, you know, you can really argue that this person was, was not in that, in effect, uh, you know, an officer in a, in any real sense. And that, you know, their, their appointment to this position was, was, was purely, um, symbolic. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to what, you know, um, the police department and the city at large believed uh, a black person should have the rights to do, even if uh, they they willingly entered into uh, into this profession and and into into this role. Yeah, um, there's so much good stuff on this timeline, important information. But I I want to uh, skip ahead to 1971. Um, Another thing that caught my eye is, um, well, two things. One, you you have an in, you write on here, 16-year-old Joe uh, Cadillo Jr. was shot six times and killed by police. And then the year after, you also have, you know, these Austin grassroots orgs that are leading, you know, protests and organizing around police brutality. And, and I it just made me pause because, again, I think in today's conversation, sometimes we talk about these issues as if they're new or that we're the first ones to um, talk about them. But, you know, we have these in the 70s, you see organizing and uh, work being done around it as well. Yeah, that's so right. Um, you know, this is... Um this has been a, a really long-term, um, you know, struggle and, and, and in a way, in a very familiar way, um, obviously, you know, there were, there were struggles, um, in, um, you know, in, during the, the Jim Crow era, during reconstruction and, and during the, the period of slavery, uh, with policing as, as they existed in those times. But even the post-civil rights era, we've had, you know, so many different movements come about uh, in response to police violence um, and an attempt to uh, to really to, to remedy the situation. Um, and I think you know it, it's 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 a really important context for people to understand when uh, when when the solutions that they're hearing from from the organizers and activists of today seem seem radical. Um, it's, it's not, it's not because, uh, you know, many, many other things haven't been tried over literally decades to try to address this problem. 
it's that they've mostly tried and been tried and failed or, or been thwarted. And so, um, you know, we're not where we are today with, with really reimagining public safety and, and trying to find alternative approaches to the public safety and health issues that we face and, and talking about defunding police and, and all of that out of nowhere. Um, this is, um, you know, in many ways, the culmination of a long history of scholarship amongst uh, a, a lot of people and also the culmination of a long history of, of activism and, and advocacy um, that's, that's really tried to approach this, this problem, the problem of, um, of police violence and, and particularly disproportionate um, uh, policing uh, in many, many different ways over many, many years. And, and coming to uh, you know, a, a realization that that we may just really need to be looking at alternative ways to solve the problems that we currently solve by criminalizing certain behaviors and then using law enforcement to to attempt to to arrest and coerce people out of those behaviors. Yeah, I, th I think this is so um, something that's so missing from a lot of the conversation is, you know, I hear a lot of folks, I'm sure you do as well, uh, push back against this narrative of, you know, why do we need to fully reimagine public safety or not liking, you know, the, you know, the term defund the police or feeling like, why don't we create another, uh, like report or study or, um, you know, <laughs> kind yeah. of bit of like, I'm not against it, but I think we should do more research kind of thing. Like, how, how frustrating is that or what is the you know what is your general response to that a great example is you know literally there have been uh in in less than a calendar year there have been uh to my count now five or six different reports that have been released about the austin police academy um two were commissioned by the police department themselves um, two others by, you know, outside contractors, the city hired. Now the equity office has done an equity assessment um, that included the, the police academy, but, but also the rest of the department. Um, they were also tasked, the equity office, with, you know, convening community members to review the training videos. Um, and, and by and large, they've all pointed to major issues with the academy. Um, and, so, and so the question is, you know, you know, how many more reports do we need, uh, you know, to, to figure out that something is really wrong and that we need to really be rethinking it from the ground up? Um, you know, so, yes, I, frustration doesn't begin to describe, you know, uh, how I feel about, um, you know, kind of the never ending, uh, seemingly, uh, you know, uh, reports that that come out uh, about all of these different things um, especially when they they approach uh, you know, problems from a similar perspective in a similar way um, so you know I you know and I and I say that not to say that I, I don't think you know in some way each of them has contributed something important to the conversation but but I think they they all have have indicated quite clearly what's what's needed and, and now we just we just need the political will to 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 to, to execute um, and um, and and not you know further delay uh, and study.
So after listening to that clip with Chris Harris, we have a pretty good recap of the history going up to about the 1970s, with some hints of today in there as well. But to provide even more context on some of the police reform efforts in our more recent past, I wanted to bring in Bill Spellman. Currently, Bill is a professor at the University of Texas, but back in the 90s and early 2000s, he was an Austin City Council member. And this is way back before our current district system, when we actually only had six at-large council members and one mayor. Anyway, I wanted to talk to Bill because in preparation for this podcast episode, I did a bit of a deep dive into the Austin Chronicles archives to get a sense for how Austin has historically approached policing and police budgets. And over and over again, Bill's name kept popping up. Like this article written by Michael King in 2014 with the headline, Three Cheers for Spellman, Councilmember Makes His Final Pitch for Sane Police Spending. The article goes on to say that a series of budget adoption discussions held in September 2014 were Spellman's, quote, annual attempt to rein in, to a degree, the growth of the Austin Police Department budget, end quote. In the end, uh, Spellman's proposal to still increase police staffing, but to a lesser degree than what APD was requesting, was ultimately voted down in a 5-2 to two vote, with just Spellman and Councilmember Laura Morrison voting for it. Given the fact that City Council voted unanimously this past summer to reduce the size of APD's budget for the first time in years, I wanted to talk to Spellman about what has changed since his time on Council. Here's a short snippet from our interview. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your history on City Council. Okay. Um, that kind of ties into this because, you know, one thing that's interesting. Well, first, when did you serve on City Council? I saw it was like you served, what, 97 to 2000 and then again or? In 2009 to 2015, yeah. Okay. And, you know, I, I went back and I was looking at um, old articles from, you know, the Chronicle and things like that. And it's so interesting to see how uh, that time period was covered and the conversation around policing. And it and you mentioned earlier, you know, it did seem like over and over you were kind of the lone, like you mentioned, Laura Morrison uh, joined at the end, but person just questioning how much we spend on police. And it was really, it seemed pretty unpopular. <laughs> um, I wonder like just how you're, uh, how you've been reflecting on this moment now in Austin where you had our city council unanimously vote to um, reduce the police department's budget. We, we, we ought to talk about what they actually did and didn't do. And, yeah. But uh, I think a lot of this is the reflection is, is a reflection of how people view power. Power is something that a community imparts to somebody. They've got power because we say they've got power. And it's not usually because they have um a real legal authority to do something. For a long time, the police association had tremendous power in Austin city government because everybody thought they did. And everybody thought if you go against the police association, they'll endorse somebody else and you will lose because nobody wants to vote against the police union. Well, at the police, I ran three times, the police union never endorsed me. Sometimes they didn't endorse anybody, but they never endorsed me. And the times when they endorsed somebody else, it didn't seem to matter very much. Uh, it's not something which is top of mind to voters in Austin, Texas. They're, they're thinking, okay, well, it'd be better to be police. It's better for the fire and police guys to, to like this guy. But we also have housing problems and transportation problems and transportation problems and transportation. We got a lot of things we need to deal with. 
And this is just one among many. So I think a lot of what happened was we had six people on the council and then it was five people on the council who said, I can't possibly go against the police union. And they demand more cops. We got to give them more cops. And I said, no, actually, they've ever endorsed me. I keep winning by landslides. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. No, they didn't see it that way because they were they were worried about what was going to they were they were worried about getting Willie Horton, I think. And I think a similar thing happens with with fire. They didn't want to go against the fire union because, you know, it's it's unpatriotic. But if you're going in favor of what the police union wants, it means that perforce you must be at least a little bit against housing and transportation and public health and libraries and parks and all those other things that could have more money if we didn't throw all of it into the police department and the fire department. And I don't, I don't mean, I love cops. I've been working with cops for 40 years. Some of my best friends used to be cops. It's been a while actually, but you know, it's, you know I, I, I know a lot of police officers and I have a tremendous respect for what it is they do. But I also have a tremendous respect for their willingness to use all of the tools at their disposal to get more. And just like every other department, wanting more is just what, they do. And we don't have to give it to them just because they have more tools. And we certainly don't have to hand them an enormous amount of power because they don't, they don't, they don't need it. So with Bill, we see a city council that is far from prioritizing a reduction in police spending. So how do we get from there to where we are today? That brings us to the last historical point I want to focus on before bringing it all back around to the present. As you might remember from our last policing episode, I mentioned that this summer's council meeting about the budget was one of the largest I've ever seen, with hundreds of Austinites testifying in support of a reduction in police spending. Well, before that meeting, another council meeting that has always stuck out in my mind was the one that took place in December of 2017. Hundreds of Austinites packed City Hall to testify for hours about police and police reforms. Sound familiar? In 2017, the conversation was all about the police contract, a multi-year agreement between the city of Austin and the local police union that negotiates everything from officer pay to police oversight and transparency. At the end of the meeting, city council voted unanimously to reject the police contract, something it had never done in the 20-ish years that it's been operating under a police contract system. In turn, that kicked off a prolonged and, at times contentious, nearly year-long process of renegotiating a new police contract. Finally, in November 2018, a four-year, $44.6 million contract was signed, which gave officers a 1% initial pay raise, with a 2% raise every year after that. It also created an Office of Police Oversight and changed the rules to allow Austin residents to submit anonymous complaints against police officers online. To shed some light on these police union contract negotiations, we're going to listen to another clip from the interview I recorded in November of 2020 with Chaz Moore of the Austin Justice Coalition and Kathy Mitchell of Just Liberty. If you listen to part one of our Policing in Austin series, you'll recognize their voices. But I wanted to share this clip in the context of this episode because Chaz, Kathy, and the organizations they represent took a leading role in advocating for a new police union contract and a move that really set the stage for the budget conversations that took place this past summer. All right, let's give that interview a listen. I want to talk a little bit more about that police contract negotiation effort 
Um, one thing that we try and do on the show a lot is explain for people like how a lot of our local government systems work and um, how they can get engaged in that process. And um, these contracts seem like, I think, a black box for people. They can be so confusing to understand what role um, they play in our policing system. And um, c- can you start to break it down for me? What, what, what was that contract just like for people who really have never heard of it? And why was it important for you know, your organization to get engaged in that? Um, <clears throat> I mean, well, honestly, you know, we, we just got started as a group because we wanted to, to change some things, but, um, you know, it, it, we were just so lucky enough to have Kathy and Scott that was kind of able to come in and be our mentors and let us know the ins and outs and where to look um, um, as far as police reform um, went. And, you know, they very quickly pointed us in the direction of police union contract. And then, you know, I think after that, it's just really um, staying engaged. It's, you know, it's going to the meetings that, that you can go to. It's taking notes. It's, um, you know, relaying or relying that, that information back into the community and letting the community um, galvanize around your fight or, or, or your ideals. But, yeah, you know, I think um, as, as much as people focus on the big national headlines, um, you know, I just have a belief that change starts locally. Um, and, you know, the more people get engaged and just really show up, it's just showing up at the meetings to, to, to process the information you hear and then, you know, doing what you think is best. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not like a secret remedy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think we just, I think we just constantly show up and we're, and we're persistent. And I think, um, I think that's why we've been able, along with the help of the community to, to, to do some really amazing stuff. Yeah. And and Kathy, I want to bring you in, you know, um, as Chaz alluded to, um, you've been working on this for a while as well. Um, Explain for folks this police union contract, what, or a police contract, what is a police contract? Why is that something as someone who is passionate about these issues should care about the contract? What does it entail? So the police contract ties up um, hundreds of millions of tax dollars in an agreement can only be altered once every few years. So it could be three years, four years, five years. Those are sort of the typical um, lengths of time. And what that means is that the dollars that are agreed to in that contract, which are how officers are getting paid, what their benefits are, all of their stipends, uh, that decision ends up tying the hands of the future councils because they find when, if there's anything they want to change about the police department, that they are limited by the, by what was agreed to. So, you know, frequently, especially around uh, issues of police misconduct, those contracts not only, negotiate the pay and benefits, but they also negotiate the systems of oversight. Mm-hmm. And as soon as, so this, is, this has been sold to the public as a good thing. You know, the police union will give the public some form of oversight in return for higher pay and benefits. And traditionally in Austin, the way that these negotiations have gone, you know, 
there will be some tiny little thing that is given in terms of an improvement in oversight. Meanwhile, the public is asked to pay an enormous price for that. Um, and because it's only negotiated once every few years, it really takes a huge chunk of the budget out of the budget process altogether. So uh, it, it, was the, it was in many respects the beginning in Austin of an effort to take as much of the oversight system out of that contract. If you get the oversight system out of the contract, you don't have to pay more for it and the union doesn't have to agree with it. Uh, so we made an effort to say, you know, this contract, this, the proposed one that was brought to council is too expensive. It had something called the patrol stipend, which was gonna pay patrol officers to patrol, mm -hmm. which to me is like paying, you know, uh, the person who checks out your groceries extra to check out your groceries, even though that is fundamentally the job they were hired to do. Um, so, you know, we, we came forward and said it's too expensive and it's far too limiting in terms of what oversight is allowed. So we need to pull the oversight out to the greatest extent possible and we need to, you know, have a more rational discussion about pay and benefits. And that's really all we did. Um, but by doing so, we were able to empower civilian oversight in Austin in ways that had never been empowered before. So we now have the Office of Police Oversight who is really conducting oversight in ways that we've never seen before. Uh, and raising issues that then have to be addressed. So I think that it led to where we are now because once we had a decent civilian oversight system, once we were starting to articulate all of the problems, then we hit a point where suddenly the problems had been pretty clearly articulated and demonstrably proven, and yet we weren't really making progress on changing the behaviors. And that's the moment I think we hit when Mike Ramos was killed. Years of work, years of increased and improved oversight, years of transparency into the problem. And suddenly we realized kind of how little we had gotten in terms of actual behavior change. Chaz, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one thing, you know, uh, I think Chaz, you, you sort of alluded to it is I remember when that police contract work was happening and um, the city council meeting where, when that vote was taken, maybe to um, for city council to reject the police contract at first, it was one of the biggest city council meetings I've ever been at. You know, most of the time you go to city council meetings and they're pretty empty and dry, but it was a packed house. And it seemed like for, you know, it, it um, there were so many people who, who showed up to talk about that. Um, and I know that was, you know, the work of a lot of your organizations. Chaz, do you want to talk about some of the organizing work that went into, um, you know, that was the first time I believe that city council ever decided to reject a contract. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was, uh, it felt like a, a 18 month process, right? Cause we had 
um, the 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 year or half a year before when Greg Kassar put us in the the budget rider, which which basically um, alluded to the fact that APD needed to work with community groups to come up with some local reforms, um, and that never really quite happened. Um, and then you know of course we went to all these boring meetings where we couldn't talk, we couldn't fully engage. Um, and we could just take notes um, vigorously. And then it came down to um, after the meetings, you know, the meetings that happened, the contract was in its first um, um, form. And, and now we had to go and talk to um, the community. And we went to every district and talked to every district um, in the city of Austin about, you know, what this contract meant and why it, it wasn't up to par. Um, and then you go you know, to the meeting, like the nine, 10 hour meeting uh, on December 13th, 2017, I believe. Um, and, you know, yeah, that was the first time I still think that was the first time anywhere that a uh, city council had told um, uh, or voted unanimously against the police union contract. Normally, like this is like a rubber stamp process because, um, you know, we just don't tell police no. Um, and then you, you fast forward six months after the union threatens to walk away from the negotiation table and then they finally come back and we have to go through another round of meetings. Um, and then we were able to get this slightly better version of, of, of a police union contract, but it was very tedious. It was a very tedious <laughs> journey. Um, but, um, and I definitely wouldn't do it again. Well, maybe I would, but, um, but yeah, it, it was, it was a process. And, and, and again, I think, the fact that we were so consistent, like we, you know, we didn't miss any meetings. We went to every meeting just like the city and the police union did. Um, and then we, you, you, the fact that we were able to um, very clearly state the problems that we saw happening in the negotiation process and in the contract, um, you know, just, I think it helped us get to where, to, to this better place that we are now. Yeah, and so, um, Kathy, as you mentioned, out of that uh, process came the Office of Police Oversight. Um, before, we had a different system, right? It was the citizen or the police monitor or something? Yeah, um, we had a police monitor and a review panel. And, you know, I think that the, the strongest statement about our previous system came from the review panel itself uh, in their letters that they wrote that increasingly over the years, you know, sounded like people trapped in a room screaming for assistance uh, because the panel would review, you know, very significant. Um, I will say, I'll use the term conduct they would review the conduct of police officers in some of our most horrific incidents. And they would find all kinds of policies and procedures that we needed to change. And they would state in each letter, in our six previous letters where we dealt with this <laughs> issue, we have stated that this needs to change and we have been ignored. And, you know, by the time that we got to that moment where we were re, you know, coming up with something different, a lot of that was in the back of our minds that the people who had been in this prior process were calling for help. Um, and so, you know, the new contract focused on 
pulling as much out of the black box as possible. Um, pretty much everything prior to this contract was a secret unless an officer received a suspension, which is the most significant form of discipline. Hmm. So not very many officers receive suspension compared to all of the misconduct that may be occurring. And so most of it remained in the black box. So by empowering, by pulling the Office of Police Oversight or formerly the monitor out of the contract, we were able to maximize the powers of that office under state law, which turned out to be significant. Um, and we were able to, in the contract, uh, get a lot more information made public about misconduct and its outcomes. And so those were kind of our biggest wins in the new contract was this much more empowered Office of Police Oversight who I wanna do a shout out is doing an amazing job um, and really like pushing to fully implement what that gain really means. And then more information about kind of when and where officers are actually disciplined so that we can understand that better and hopefully at a, you know, figure out why there continue to be these horrific moments where I think people feel that misconduct is happening right in front of our eyes and yet nothing occurs. I think we're, we're all waiting right now to see what, um, Brian Manley is going to do as far as all of the people who were shot at protests this summer. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, what, one thing that, what, that sticks with me or, or about what you just, what you mentioned is, so we have this office of police oversight an improvement from the previous system. You know, we, you, you have this more clarity and openness, but there are still problems, right? And, 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 and Chaz, I wonder if you can comment on this. To me, this seems to be what was really brought to the forefront this summer in the city's budget conversation. And I think as one of the pushbacks I hear the most is, well, why do we have to go so far as reimagining the whole system? Um, you know, why can't we just implement these reforms like Office of Police Oversight? Why is that not enough? Um, and it seems like that's kind of a bit of what the city is grappling with now. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you and your organization have have approached that as far as feeling like we need more? Well, you know, I think I think um, Kathy alluded to it a little bit earlier. Right. Like you look at, um, you know, you look at the implementation of th this new improved um, Office of Police Oversight. You look at the policies that, that we've all been a part of writing, you look at the trainings, you look at, you know, all these things that we've done, um, but yet and still, you know, uh, Mike Ramos, uh, you know, David Joseph, you know, and when you look at the fact that um, police shootings of unarmed people, um, in, at, at the very least, have been happening in Austin since the 80s, and you implement these reforms when people are still getting shot, um, and, and, you know, we talk about mental health training for officers, but we still have the Maurice De Silva's, right? Like, um, at, at some point we have to like really get under the hood 
and and examine if 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 maybe we just need a new engine, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe like maybe this like maybe this isn't um, able to work the way we thought it could. Um, and you know, like that's all kind of federal legislation. That's local legislation that um, is supposed to make this 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 thing better. Um, but it hasn't, which is why we see the uprisings, which is why we see what's going on in St. Louis and why we see what was going on in Baltimore and why we see, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement be what it is. Um, so now, you know, at, at, at the risk of um, not being insane, it's just like, you know what, let's invest um, time, money, resources and energy into something um, that isn't harmful, in, into something that when people call, they get the help they need, or uh, when people call, like these situations can be um, treated or, or handled differently, right? There's no reason that if somebody calls 911 for a mental health call, um, that person who's going through mental duress should be shot dead. Um, there's no reason that David Joseph, who was a young man that um, you know had an off day, had a bad day, and who was unclothed, should be dead. Um, there's no reason. There's no reason Mike Ramos should be dead, right? Like. So um, given the history of policing, um, just even here on a local level, I, I think, it, you know, I think the community, I think, I think the city itself is just like ready to, to try something different because again, this thing historically and systemically is incapable of producing the results, the desired results, I, I, I think, um, that many of us want, which is, you know, if something bad happens, yes, we want this situation to be uh, mitigated as peaceful as possible. And it seems that the police departments and police institutions as they are today are incapable of doing it. I'd like to add that um, this is that pivot point in the conversation where I have stopped sort of throwing out the word misconduct in the way that maybe I once did and I've started talking about conduct. And the reason is that um, we're at a moment where we're trying to figure out what we really need and what a police department can deliver of that need, if anything. And all of the conduct that we've been concerned about all this time and the reason that there's no justice for that conduct may not be because those police did something wrong. It may be that they're doing exactly what they've been trained to do and that the system is working exactly as it's been designed. And that's the part we're trying to now kind of pick pick apart, I guess. And I wanna give a little tiny example, but I think it's a really telling one. Um, I've been spending a lot of time recently looking at dog bite cases police dog bite cases in Mm -hmm. the use of force spectrum. And the thing about dog bite cases is number one, it goes, the the use of police dogs goes back to uh, the earliest policing, which goes back to uh, slavery and sending dogs after slaves. The, the notion, if you can pull it out of the we've always done it this way kind of conversation and think about why in the world you would train a dog to bite people 
And that's exactly what's ha- what is done. These dogs are trained to attack. Uh, why you would do that and why you would be shocked that sometimes people get bitten who were presenting no serious threat to anyone um, points to that exact question. Is the system not working or is it working exactly the way it was built 300 years ago? There are, policing is full of these things that we do because we've always done it that way. And it's not just the small things like training police dogs to try to chase people and bite them. It's a lot of big things like the role of patrol. Why do we believe that a guy driving around in cars, mostly seeing people not doing anything criminal is a great way to police? Like, why do we think that? Well, again, patrol goes all the way back to the roots of policing in controlling black people at the end of slavery. And so part of what's happening in Austin and what what I think is the most exciting piece about this reimagine is this idea that we understand we need a public safety strategy It's possible that this one has its roots so deeply in our history of slavery and our history of um, caste, caste relationships that maybe we need to deeply rethink, not fix or tweak around the edges, but deeply rethink how we address our public safety needs. And that's the exciting thing about where we are. And with that, we've brought our history of policing in Austin all the way up to the present day. And that's where we're going to end it for this episode. But be sure to stick with us because we've still got a few episodes in our Policing in Austin series coming up focusing on everything from the police academy to public safety data and statistics. You can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And as always, you can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast live via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. That's all. Thank you.